Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Morning, Eric. How are you? Pretty good. You mentioned today that you might want to talk about how about costs and where the funds go. Is our bucket leaky, or is it uh, you know going to actually be be used properly? If that analogy makes any sense. Yeah. Well, you know, and I I, I think people are generally aware of the fact that uh, the preponderance of their local tax dollar goes to justice costs, being police. Uh, sheriffs, road patrol, personnel, jail, mm-hmm. courts, uh, etc. Uh, and then a very big proportion of their state tax dollar goes to support what in most states is the largest cost to their system using state dollars. Often not the largest budget item, but some of the other budget items like uh, Department of Social Services and whatnot draw mm-hmm. down from federal funds. And so while they might have larger budgets, they're also drawing down a larger percentage of non-state dollars. So if you consider, as the jargon goes, a state program, uh, which is an odd way to describe a Department of Corrections, but nonetheless I've heard it described that way, is that the largest share of state program dollars goes to corrections. And so you can examine this question from both the state and local perspective, thinking about the state perspective, uh, because a lot of the local spending is kind of reflective of that. What does the state not cover? The locals have to pick it up. The state dollars may cover support for some of the law enforcement. Some federal money may be going into that, but familiar enough with the state budget in Michigan to make some general mm-hmm. you know, comments about that. So you've got a budget in Michigan, a state with 9 million people, corrections budget of $2.2 billion, wow. and that's uh, all, all state dollars. That runs, uh, you know, 30, 31 or 32 prisons. I think they reopened one of the ones we closed. Um, and under the supervision in the prison system is about 44,000 people. In our state, it's um, kind of unified in that uh, prisons and probation and parole and community programs are all in one budget, uh, as opposed to other states that may have separate budgets for those. So you've got to do some addition to get these similar apples to apples comparisons. But with, you know, 44,000 state prisoners, an estimate of about 17,000 people on parole, maybe twice that on probation, you know, you got about 70,000 people plus under some form of supervision. And when you start to do the math, if you just divide that budget up, you know, 70,000 people, Mm $2.2 billion, you get a pretty expensive per person cost. And so once you examine uh, where those dollars go, um, you see that about 85% of them, of the dollars, go for personnel. And most of that personnel is prison personnel, where the staffing patterns, uh, as they call it, are steep. The ratio of uh, staff to Mm -hmm. uh, offender is is higher than it is if you're on parole, where you might have, you know, caseloads in, in the hundreds too. Two, three hundred people in your case on it. So, for a for a prison with a thousand prisoners, or I mean, is is it a, is it like a ten is it a, a ten to one ratio or? Well, it's it's not that simple because the it, it it depends on what custody levels you're running, staffing patterns for maximum security, medium mm-hmm. security, minimum security prisons are all very different. You look at custody staff, you look at personnel staff, and I'm not sure how many folks are 
you know, really want to get into those details, we could uh, do that research and get into some of that detail. Maybe we can post some of that. But um, needless to say, it's expensive. And the the general figure that 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 we use it's about forty five thousand dollars on average per person per year in prison, and that's just looking at that prison budget, which is important. You know, if the two point two billion dollar budget in Michigan, somewhere in the in the range of eighty eighty five percent of that mm-hmm. money is for prisons, and then within that number, eighty eighty five percent of that money is for personnel, and so when you've got personnel costs, these are uh, this is expensive. You know, and, and not that they pay correctional officers all that well. They don't. They pay better mm-hmm. here than other states. But you've also got the cost of benefits. You got the cost right. of pensions and retirement. And then you've got to pay the cost for people who are retired to receive those pensions and benefits. And then on top of it, you've got things like lawsuits that are, uh, you know, pandemic across all corrections. Right. A whole bunch of the money gets hemorrhaged off to the lawyers. Millions and millions of dollars and just so much investigation and, and cost and a lot of legal fees and things of that nature. And then related to personnel, you've got technological uh, fees for you know, IT and, and communication capabilities mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so the the costs are a variable to consider when asking the questions, so is it worth right. it, does it work? And it, it depends on what your measure is. I mean, if we're running a safe prison system where there's not a lot of uh, altercations and deaths and uh, things of that nature in the prison system, which I think it's fair to say that's true in Michigan, although not uh, mm-hmm. without its problems, um, then that's one way to consider safety. You know, people escaping all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And parole supervision is, I think, is pretty good, regardless of the high caseloads. But then when you look at another measure, which is return to prison, uh, one might argue that anything over a 50% failure rate, return to prison, would, would uh, be yeah. something less than success. And we've got, uh, depending on how you measure recidivism, you've got uh, another crime that's committed that's one form of recidivism, another conviction is mm-hmm. another form of recidivism, and a return to prison, and those numbers are all very different. So there really is an ongoing debate that the public is not too too particularly aware of, of what happens every budget year when considering what these costs are and whether the cost of running the Department of Corrections goes up or down, and whether or not lawmakers who are controlling the budget are bringing into that discussion the relative right, success right, or right. failure, right, and all the individual system, programs, right, and 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 then and then as you know, as we've talked about ad nauseum, the frequency of the, the turnaround of state legislators with people running for re-election every two years in the House and most places, although some it's four years in the House and four years in the Senate. How much history do you have? And you walk into a budget, and you're a junior or a freshman member of the right. legislature, and you bring all your own policy people. You don't necessarily inherit the policy wonks from before because because your people know better uh, well so you think people you 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 continue right. on from your campaign you know uh which of course is interesting because it's not Skills. necessarily the same right. skill set that, that that you need but you know it's reward kind of stuff and that jobs will pay all that well anyway and there is a surprising amount of uh of uh staff in legislators legislatures that turn over when a senator, you know, term limits or is defeated and another senator comes in, that staff continue to work mm-hmm. in the Senate for somebody. It's like any kind of job right. in your field and your specialty area, et cetera. So you do have some uh, legacy of, 
of institutional okay. memory with staffing. But the, the major point is that if you're a freshman or an incoming, and this is a budget cycle that goes through every year, I mean, how much do you raise your hand and say, well, geez, I just have a general question. Uh-huh. Why does it cost so much? And what are you doing with all this money? And how does that connect with the recidivism rate? And, you know, when you're a freshman or a younger legislator, you're not um, you're not going to be looked upon very favorably if you delay these hearings, which are very, very fast paced, particularly around the budget, um, with a lot of detail, you know. Right. And just come in there and ask, ask these questions that are not really trivial to answer necessarily. Uh, and, yeah, that's going to slow things down to a halt and then. And, and to what end? I mean, what do you do about it? I mean, you, you've got uh, governors are recommending budgets. Those budgets pick up from where they were last year. These costs are relatively right. unavoidable. And if somebody said, well, you know, I don't want to spend $2.2 in the corrections department. I only want to spend $2 billion. So what do we do? Right. You say, well, what do you want to get off? Right. What do you want to take away? All well, right. And so you're in the executive and you've got this budget and the first thing we would do is we would create what what we called internally uh-huh. the stupid list. And you want to explain to legislators, particularly the ones that are asking this question, we want to cut, what would we cut? Well, you put on the list stuff that's stupid. I mean, you know, you look at it, several million dollars of cuts or a hundred million dollars of cuts. You look at elimination of parole, elimination of, you know, uh, probation supervision, cutting out, you know, reducing health care programs. So, so you, you and there's costs. There's cost right, you so can't when, when you say a stupid list, you put you put things on there that you that you can't possibly remove. So that if you so that if you ask to remove yeah. it, you're going to look stupid. Is that well, right. And 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 it's it's realistic. I mean, you, you, you see governors all the time. And I dealt with the Senator Governor Granholm where the revenue right. is just not enough. And so you start with this internal executive debate on across-the-board cuts. And you say, well, you know, revenue's down 10%, therefore we need to cut expenses 10%. We're going right. to do across-the-board 10%. 10 right. Well, then each, then each agency comes up with their own list. And if you're in the office of aging, you know, you say, well, what we'll cut is, uh, uh, you know, response to um, health care right. dilemmas for the aging. And so then you have, if that gets going, if that gets moving, then you have a lobby that's going to come out and say, well, you're just going to let these old people die. And there's statistics that will show that since you instituted these types of programs, you save lives. Or you say, well, let's look at early childhood education. We're going to cut out uh, breakfast programs for kids or we're going to cut out, you know, an early on program, a preschool program of some kind. And then the, the data shows that that has a that program has a very positive impact on healthcare costs up the road or educational costs or even prison costs, you know, and there is longitudinal data that shows correlations between future imprisonment and poor healthcare and poor education, you know, and so that's where the debate goes. But when you're in corrections, now you're dealing with public safety. Well, we could just let, you know, 600 Mm -hmm. people out of prison early. You know, we need an executive order. Uh, We need law changed and we could do that. And the legislature's like, well, we don't want to do that. Uh, or, you know, we could we could reduce health care costs by cutting this out or cutting that out. And then we're going to increase loss. Well, we don't want to do that. Increase right. lawsuits. We don't want to do that. We'll eliminate, you know, increased caseloads, which does, in fact, create uh, more crime, more opportunities mm-hmm. for crime. Well, we don't want to do that. And so eventually they abandon the 10 percent across the board cut and they go into more uh, uh, specific cuts in particular agencies, which is very, very, very time consuming. 
and uh, corrections very often will not get the hit that the other departments get because because it's such a complex and nuanced issue. Well, and the, the one might argue that the top priority of state government is to protect the citizens. Right. The, the, the priority of all of state government mm-hmm. is to protect people, protect them from everything, not just crime, protect them from sure. disease and you know, safety issues, et cetera. And so uh, corrections comes up you know, big on that, and uh, it's tough. So what you see are generally escalating costs across the board uh, in all states' corrections agencies. And when you examine those states that have seen a reduction, you see that the reduction has come across, not surprisingly, by cutting the major cost in of personnel within the prison system. And the way that you do that is you reduce yep. the prison population. You don't you don't mess with your staffing patterns, although there, there is some of that. I mean, depending on the custody level, staffing patterns are going to be necessarily higher than lower. And if you cut those staffing patterns too much, you're going to put your uh, employees at risk and put other inmates at risk. But there, there's a sweet spot that, that you can get to, and maybe there is some reductions there. But for the most part, every budget just picks up from last year. And when you've got costs that cannot be controlled, such as increased mm-hmm. costs because of pensions, increased costs because electricity is higher sure. or gas is higher, transportation costs, uh, these are uh, what they call economics, and they go up every year, and they become an increasing percentage of your budget. And so you look at a $2.2 billion budget, and your legislator or you're in the executive, you say, well, what can we cut? Well, they're not that much. Yeah, because all the, all the other little bits that you could cut, like pensions or staff wages or something, it's just going to infuriate people. Uh, those, are all, those are all pitfalls, but the, but the thing that's actually moves the needle is reducing the prison population. That's, I guess, that's not going to cause any one piece of the, of the system to, to lash out against you, because obviously the, the prisoners want fewer prison population, and uh, it's just the general population might see that as, wait, you're letting bad guys go, I guess, is the, is the main downside, the main political struggle with that. You're not going to get sued because you're taking away a pension or because you're cutting a job or something, but you you could potentially get big wins there by reducing the prison population. Well, and, and that's a, a, it takes a longer-term right. view. It takes an awful lot of leadership, and it's got to be bipartisan. It's got to be bicameral, meaning all three branches of government need to be involved. Judiciary less involved. It's a parole issue. But, you know, the, the controversy of letting people go early uh, is a whole lot higher controversy than doing some work on the front end so that fewer people go in in the first place. And in order to make that work, you've got to do some additional uh, investment. And, and and if you invest now, you may save costs later, but it isn't going to cut your budget this year. Right. Because you've got to implement, you've got to get some success going. You've got, you know, uh, months and months, if not years of time that has to elapse before you can realize that admissions have gone down, you know, right. and in order for that to happen, You've got to have uh, a very, very tight set of communications and then deliberate expectations with the judiciary that their sentencing practices will support what you're trying to do. And right. since judiciary is independent, um, that means that you can offer, but you can't tell the judiciary what to do. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're fiercely independent. In fact, their budget is usually behind a screen. You only know the amount. You don't know what it's spent for. It's mm-hmm. one of the more incredible 
aspects of the justice budget is that the court's budget comes in as a package. And because they're an independent branch of government, the legislative branch has no, uh, they, they control the power of the purse, but they're not, they don't have the power to be able to say, well, we don't want to fund this, we don't want to fund that, we want to cut it. Now, that varies from state to state, but right. as a general rule, it's the case. And so you're, you're, you're caught up in this difficult uh, set of circumstances that lead you toward ever-expanding budgets. And so compare all that mess mm -hmm. to the mess of raising taxes and the, the pushback from that. Right. And, you know, and so that's a heavy lift. You're going to increase the gas tax, as they're uh, trying to do in Michigan, by, uh, I believe, that the uh, proposal is out there. It's 45% increase. That's wow. a lot of money per gallon going from, you know, $2.250 to 3 bucks. I mean, we'll soon be... What's a, what's a gallon of gas cost in Spain? American dollars. I have no idea. You don't drive? I very rarely buy gas, and when I do, they sell it in euros per liter. So you'd have to convert both the numerator oh. and, and the denominator. Uh, but it's it's way more expensive here than it is in the U.S. Right, in general. Right. Well, and it's for the, for the for the very reason we're for talking. Taxes. About. That's what that's what funds the government. I mean, you know, right. and so, you know, the the, the 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 challenge for a politician, for an elected official, is no matter what I do, I'm going to get grief. Sure. I'm either going to cut expenses or I'm going to raise revenue. I'm going to do a little bit of both, which is usually the way you go. And so you can show that you're, you know, doing these more surgical, what they call surgical cuts or more precision, precision cuts mm -hmm. in different agencies across the board. But if you're not cutting personnel, then you're not really going to get into a whole lot of cost savings. You know, you, you know, it take you got 14,000 people, probably more than that now, who work for the Department of Corrections in the state of Michigan. 14,000. So, good Lord, uh, if you don't control those costs, which are very hard to control, um, then you're not going to really do much by way of cutting. And the same is true in all agencies, although some are more staff intensive than others. And so it's really difficult to, to, to get at these issues, you know, very, very difficult, time consuming and politically challenging. And yeah. So it sounds like you like the if if we made if we made you the dictator of you can control uh, all these decisions for something, it sounds like the, the goal would be uh, realize that the that the costs are going to steadily rise over the next few years, but implement some 100 different things in different parts of the system that we think is going to slowly lower it over, you know, it's going to be lower after 20 years, but after five years, it's still probably have going to continue yeah. to have risen. But then uh, long term, uh, all of our investments in the preschools and all this stuff is going to bring it all down in the long term. But that can't possibly work because of democracy. Right. Well, and, and consider the medium term. So, you know, the the you know, when you've got a, a House, a representatives in the House that are running every two years, five years is a long time. Right. When you've got a Senate that's serving every four years, five years is, 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 is a bit of a length of time, let alone 10 and 20. And so your motivation to make uh, tough decisions that are unpopular, either on the uh, cut side or on the revenue side or a bit of both, is going to change uh, somewhat depending on where you sit as an elected official, if you're a, and what you want your future to be. I mean, if you're a House member, you want to end up being a senator. If you're a senator, do you want to be a congressman? Do you right. want to end up being governor? If you're governor, do you want to end up being a congressman? I mean, you know, do you want to end up being president? Now, of course, in this election cycle in this country, in the U.S., since we've got such a controversial uh, president, you know, we've got over 20 people running for president, including, you know, mayors, right. uh, you know, state legislators 
former legislature. I mean, just a, a whole penelope of people that, that is unusual with that size of a, uh, a you know a group of people that are running. And the first debates are coming up in June, so it should be pretty fascinating. But where you sit and how long you're there and what you want your future to be politically is a huge, huge part of this issue. Right. Um, and it's it's fascinating when you're talking to legislators who will have a set of values that come clearly through in conversations one-on-one and what that conversation is like and how that conversation is much different when you're actually in a hearing mm-hmm. and that legislators standing in the committee structure particularly on the on the fresh end right maybe right. quite low they're not able to ask a lot of questions get called in, and they may not be in a power position these you know the way that budget decisions are made while you've got votes in committee and whatnot it's all done by leadership behind closed doors and then the ability for the leadership to control the vote and so you have the the house dems and the house republicans those are different uh, organizational entities that take positions and then they try to keep their members in line and 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 when they're in line that's when you have you know unanimous votes out of committee you know or or uh, postponement or taking it off the schedule all these tricks of the trade that can postpone or speed up uh, legislation and or budgets and so it, it gets very complicated with that too who's the speaker of the house and where's the speaker of the house want to go and what's his or her politics i mean these are enormously complex issues and at the end of the day uh, one would wonder so how much do they actually have to do with the budget per se and the question that we open with is so is the money working is the bang worth the buck Mm-hmm. And, you know, and at the end of the day, given the justice system is not functioning at a very high level of success, it must be pretty obvious to people that that's not one of the major questions going into the budget. Right. It's all this other stuff. And and not to minimize the freight train of what a budget looks like and these economics that you can't change year to year to year. It's very, very tough stuff. Um, and so budgets escalate. Taxes rise. We pay an increasing portion of corrections. And there you have it. Yeah. So is it... I mean, I guess on the one, on an, on the other hand, this incredible inertia to affect change uh, has its has its positive side as well. You you don't get you know really radical people elected that you know say we're going to close all the prisons or we're going to uh, uh, quadruple the number of prisons. But I guess this the fact that they're in this political molasses all the time means that yes change is hard but also breaking the system even more so is uh, yeah. is also difficult well and uh, generally you know the rule of politics is that you, you you promise a lot of stuff to get elected and if you promise the right stuff to the majority of people who vote then you'll get elected and then you've got to deliver on those promises and one of the interesting analyses that some have done and there's some history on this that you can find uh, research wise it can always be done again is to say well how much was corrections or crime and justice even talked about during the election hmm. so you look at the last gubernatorial race here um that uh governor gretchen uh, whitmer uh, uh won um who has a storied career in the justice system both as a senator where she was in deep uh, leadership on budget issues and policy issues and then for a short time a prosecutor uh when the prosecutor in uh uh, Lansing, uh, Michigan, uh, was convicted of sex offense and had to be replaced, and she was the replacement. So she knows all about corrections and justice issues very, very clearly. But it didn't come up. I don't, right. I don't, I don't recall seeing one 
article, questionnaire, news article, media of any kind, mm -hmm. anything that had to do with justice, uh, anything that had to do with corrections. And so now that she's governor, is it a big issue? Well, not particularly. Mm -hmm. right. But until you get to the budget, and when you get to the budget, it's like, well, corrections is going up. There's nothing we can do about it unless we want to do, you know, stupid things. Right. Um, and so what do we do? And the, what did you run on? Well, she ran on, you know, the phrase, which is pretty well known here in politics. We need to fix the damn roads. You know, right. it was one of her phrases, which was interesting. It was very effective, you know, too, because she was clearly angry about it. And, you know, swearing about it was like, right. oh, my, oh, my. Right. You know, the damn roads. Um but now that's what she's got to do, and in order to do that, she needs to raise the gas tax. Right. Well, that she's not going to get probably the full amount of money she wants to raise the gas tax. What is that primary issue, uh, both political and budget? How does that affect corrections, which has got $2.2 billion budget? Well, the answer is uh, not much. Yeah. I mean, perhaps it's, not at all. Yeah, I mean, roads is such a tangible issue that everyone has to deal with. Uh, everyone has an opinion on, are the roads good or not? Yeah. Uh, and n thankfully, not everyone ha needs to think about prisons all the time. Right. Because unless you are, unless uh, a crime is visited upon you, uh, or you or you commit one, the justice system isn't a big part of your day as much as roads are, right? Right, well, and the, and the, the unlike roads, the opinion of voters relative to justice issues is predictable and not particularly productive nor positive mm -hmm. because their attitude is, well, lock them up, throw away the key, kill yeah. them, uh, you know, wipe them out. They don't deserve, you know, fair treatment, let alone, sure. you know, good treatment. Um, and so if you're a politician, you don't really want to go there. Right. You know, there's not a lot of votes in it. You know, although now that, as we've talked about in other podcasts, where you've got an increasing uh, number of former prisoners that are voting and can vote and mm. efforts underway that I've uh, participated in to get them registered to vote, they can and will have a greater voice over time. And then their voice, too, will be heard much more clearly. And that's one of the things to think about uh, up the road a little bit is the degree to which that will change over the course of, you know, many, many years to come. Um what sort of, if you could pick your ideal candidate for uh, for criminal justice reform, would it be? I mean, it would be someone that has worked in 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 that industry, like maybe a defense lawyer or a or a or a community activist. Yeah, well, uh, it's a, a or just someone that's aware of the issues and concerned. Thinking, thinking politically, uh, right. rather than uh, substantively to begin with, since right. it's a political question. Uh, prosecutors often make better candidates for higher office than other people in the justice system mm -hmm. um, because the general public's view of being tough right. is reflected in their history. What did you do in the justice system? I put a bunch of people away. I locked them up. And, right. and so then and then you can look at a, 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 a continuum or a range of perspective on a former prosecutor, whether they were uh, more conservative, more liberal, uh, et cetera, more creative, less creative. Um, and then that, uh, is an additional test, you know, um, thinking though, so prosecutors are more, are more electable than defense attorneys. Yes. As a general rule. Yes. What right. did you do? Right. Well, my job was to defend people and 
you know, try to keep them from going to prison. Whether they were guilty or not, well, we didn't really talk about that. <laughs> right, exactly. You know? So, but that's, however, you know, it's it's our growing opinion that uh, we need to reduce the prison population. So it, I, it seems like the defense attorneys would be more aligned with that uh, model, but maybe not. Well, substantively, um, an, an interesting uh, point. Substantively, you will find because many systems don't have a public defender system, they have an, you know, appointed attorneys system. You've got uh, a certain level of knowledge and intellect in the defense bar Mm -hmm. driven by a combination of their education and experience that you draw from. And if you were to look at the curricula for law school, you would see very, very little, if anything at all, about uh, alternative sentencing. Ah, right. So, you know, it's not like defense attorneys are educated, schooled, and, and particularly well experienced in a plea bargain system where they cut a deal and the deal has to do with months behind bars or nothing behind bars and not so much any of the details. So I think it's a general rule. I'd say that they're they're a little less prepared than, than we'd like to see them. If you're in a public defender system where that's an, an entity, an organization that's funded, then you're going to have a greater degree of organizational history and experience to draw from. Um, but that's not to say that uh, lawyers of any kind are particularly well-schooled and, and, and well-versed in anything other than the law. You know, uh, if you take a, one thing you can say is that you, you can't get out of law school and pass the bar if you're an idiot. I mean, you've got to have some right. brain power. And so you're, you're, you're going to be smart. You're probably going to be pretty well-organized. You're probably going to be studious um, or yep. you wouldn't have gotten that far. And so those are good skills, uh, you know, for running uh, for office. You know, Kamala Harris, uh, a former prosecutor, uh, African-American woman running for president. We're looking into some of her justice issues. And, you know, right off the bat that that's somebody that you could sit down and talk to. And she knows what she's talking about. Yeah. And she's and she's going to be because she's studious and now policy oriented. She's going to be uh, much more uh, reflective and substantive when she considers how to respond to questions or what policies uh, she wants to promote. And she's likely to be quite realistic over this whole you know, thing that you raised a moment ago about long-term versus short-term. Mm-hmm. And so uh, her learning curve on this set of issues is relatively uh, short uh, right. or, or you know, not particularly steep compared to the others. But having said that, what does it matter when you're running for president? Right. You know, and there it's really about opinion and whether or not your opinion is going to be favorably, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, more about like, it's more about likability at yeah. this point. Well, I mean, uh, I like your opinion on justice, but as president, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to be running for president and say, I'm going to reform the justice system at the right, end of the, the state day. level. <laughs> right. Which is where the where the push needs to happen. Now, you can talk about the federal government's capability to assist states to reform the system, which is quite incredible. Um, given the is, that, is that a, is that a ma- is that a matter of uh, here's some budget for you if you change some of your policies on these on these things? Can, can they dangle conditional budget? Well, well, sort of. Uh, the 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 purpose of the money, which is legislated, okay, is to participate in reform efforts that result in less recidivism, i.e., right. less crime. Uh, or violations, and you and I know, as we've, we've talked, that the biggest reason people are in prison is not because of the crime they committed, it's because of their violation behavior while they're under supervision. 
Right. So that's a nuance that you certainly aren't going to get into when you're running for president of the United States. For sure. But I think that, you know, if you are a former legislator, uh, less a congressperson, but perhaps a state legislator, you're going to be more aware of and involved in substantive issues around justice because most state legislators have got to know enough about it to be able to do the votes and whatnot. And it, but but it is a bit of a specialty area, too, you know, where you've got a handful of state legislators that are known for their intellect and their substantive understanding and their go to people. Mm-hmm. So that somebody that, you know, says, hey, I'm more concerned about the roads and education. There's this vote coming up. You know, how do I parlay that vote into helping me get what I want over here? What kind of a deal can we cut? That's how you get the votes in the first place. Right. So right. it's 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 all interrelated. But um You've got to have a you've got to have an educated electorate uh, and an educated uh, legislative uh, branch in order to be able to uh, promote this. But back to your question about the feds, they have dollars that are appropriated through the Second Chance Act that if you apply for them in a competitive application process, you will receive several million dollars, depending on the grant award over a couple of years to institute reforms, which could have short term, medium term, longer term effect. And it has the great value of not having to spend state dollars to begin with. The challenge, though, and this is you know pandemic, is that once that federal money's gone, it goes away. Yeah. And while the federal money requires what they call a sustainability plan, it's usually very vague, and you're saying stuff in the application you can't possibly deliver. Right. That you know that you're going to predict in three years that the legislature will pick up the dollars for these programs that help people. Right. When helping people is seen as being soft on crime and. Do we start that whole conversation over again, right, about all the things that go into that? It's very, very complicated. Somebody said to me the other day, I can't remember who it was, I was one of the people working for me, a construction worker, um, working on my house. So is, is, it, is it getting better? Is it going to work? Are these things going to take hold? And I said, I mean, I wasn't a particularly good frame of mind, but I said, no, no, not in my lifetime. You know, and here I'm, I'm approaching retirement age. All, all data, all data points to no. All data points in the wrong direction. You see, pockets of states. I mean, I'm working in uh, Connecticut, as you know, and they're they're taking hold. They've had a, a decrease in their prison population. I, I'll, I'll examine while I'm there the degree that their budget's gone down. It's an interesting fact that in states, like Michigan, for example, when we close prisons, et cetera, the budget did not go down. Costs for a particular area went down, but at the same time, costs in other areas went up. Right, because if you have a budget of you know two billion or whatever, and you can save some costs somewhere else, that's you don't want to then report back. Oh, we don't actually need quite so much money next year. Right, you're right. you're gonna you're gonna say, well, all right, well now we have this extra money that we've saved. Where can we spend it on? Well, I'll give you an example of why this this is legitimate, very legitimate. Is that any corrections department has a list of capital issues, uh, infrastructure issues. You've got a lot of buildings, you've got a lot of prisons, and they have boilers and they have. Uh, uh, roofs and, and windows and, right. and like a house. I mean, you've got to take care of this stuff. And so, you know, at any given time, you can go to a corrections department and say, let me see your capital outlay list. And it's a list that's a mile long and enough appropriation to, to, to do certain things. But instead of replacing the roof, you patch the roof. It's the same thing that we have to do with our own pocketbooks. So right. if you have some uh, leeway because costs uh, for personnel uh, have gone down, that's immediately, immediately uh, taken up with, with things around capital outlay. Sure. You know, in, in fact, maybe one of the reasons that you're doing 
the reform efforts in the first place is because your infrastructure is crumbling and you say we can't continue to spend this much money over here this money that we have the legislators aren't, aren't going to give us any more so we need to figure out a way to right. within our own ecosystem uh right. pinch pennies here to spend them over there right 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 so hmm. you know um but you know you get back to this this uh who who in the state is motivated to take the longer term view um and uh notwithstanding annual budget pressures but to start digging in and in connecticut we see that uh in a state in the uh, report that uh, came out of the sentencing project mark maurer steve DeBoer, uh and i uh wrote uh five states that have had good decarceration policies connecticut was one of the ones that we examined and they had some prodigious gains um and yet the recidivism rate uh, has not changed much and the folks that are in the trenches in the communities working with people have not seen a lot of difference Hmm. Even though they've had a remarkable run, Governor Malloy, that uh, was governor for uh, the state uh, for many years, uh, is gone, and now there's there's a new governor. And after all the the great things that governor did that we highlighted in our report, people looking around and saying, "Well, it really hasn't affected me much. I don't have any more housing, employment, social services for these guys. They're still getting released uh, without right. any supervision. You know, this incredible percentage there. I want to." I want to say it's uh, in the 35, 40% range compared to other states. They, you know, they max out of prison only 15% of the time. And so people are hitting the streets with nothing. And they're, they're homeless the day that they're released. And this is happening across the board. And so the communities in Connecticut are, have formed a reentry collaborative. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's who I'll be uh, working with in the coming year, led by a, a really nice uh, connection with the university system, University of uh, Central uh, Connecticut and uh, 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 professor uh, Policy Wonk there by the name of Andrew Clark, uh, mm -hmm. who's doing a, a great job thinking about it. He'd, he'd make a nice guest uh, mm -hmm. when we start bringing guests in um, because his perspective, uh, he worked in the legislature as a staff person, uh, been working with the executive. He's a researcher, uh, data cruncher, policy uh, wonk, et cetera. He's a brilliant, brilliant young guy. Mm -hmm. um, well, young compared to me, older than you. Uh, but uh, fascinating stuff. And I'm very excited about it because it's, one of the few times that the work I'm doing is done at the bequest of communities rather than the state. Um, I like it. Right. Yeah, I like it too. I, I think it's going to be worth, uh, you know, a couple dedicated uh, shows at some point. We may want to do one in Hartford uh, one time too. Mm -hmm. One thing you mentioned in, in passing was uh, the concept of um, alternative sentencing. It strikes me, and you know, in in my layman's ignorance, it seems like one good way to reduce prison population might be to make sure that all the judges around the state or country are really informed about the positive effects of sentencing that isn't sending someone to prison yeah and 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 also the negative consequences of sending someone to, pr to prison to learn um, among all the all the other prisoners it seems like that's a particular point where you could move the needle quite a bit if you could just get the actual people that are making the decision to send someone to prison or not, if they could say no more than they say yes, does that is that uh, reasonable or is well, the problem because the judges are, are some of the judges are elected that they have to maintain this stuff on crime malarkey? As as, as ever, not a a good question, uh, <laughs> but a complicated response. And so, the challenge here is the independence of the judiciary, many of whom are elected, and even if they're appointed, <clears throat> they're still independent. And so. Unlike the executive branch where you can issue an order uh -huh. and your state agencies need to follow the order 
And if you're head of a department, then your expectation is that your staff will do what they're told to do because the chain of command and the leadership is 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 not foster independence. Right. right? It's a chain of command. That's not true of the judiciary. Yeah, so, I was going to say judges are must be fiercely independent. It's got to be like herding cats. Well, you know. that means that if you want to uh, uh, motivate or uh, you know uh, work with the, with the judiciary to get some different outcomes, you really have to work with each of them. Right. And wow, that's complicated because there's so many judges, and they each have their own predisposition. Now, one of the places that you know, if you're a judge, what did you do before that? Well, uh, preponderance of, of, of judges, all of whom are lawyers in most right. states. Uh, some states don't require you to be a lawyer to be a judge, which is pretty really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you come from prosecution. Right. And so you've got that bent rather than defense, which has got another bent. So you come in with a philosophical predisposition. You may come in with what did you uh, what was your philosophy or what did you say to the public? when you were running for office or before you were appointed, and there's your record, and mm -hmm. so let's so that's that. So now let's look at the data, and let's look at the percentage that a single judge is using options short of prison or prison. Right. Compare them, and you see that that varies widely, not just from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, where there may be, in any particular jurisdiction, two or three judges. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna see solidarity, necessarily, in a jurisdiction, well, all these three judges are the same. No, one of the judges is much more conservative than the other. One of the judges sentences 85% of the people before him or her to prison, while the yeah. other one does 50, and the mm -hmm. third one does 20. And you can see, well, two of them were former prosecutors, one was a former defense attorney, you know. And so, what you do is you try to you, you put stuff together for them. You might pass a law, which is a very smart way to go. Many states have done this over 40 have passed what's called the Community Corrections Act, and that Community Corrections Act has as its mission the, uh, the, the creation within the local court systems of alternatives to imprisonment that will both improve the use of the local jail system, mm -hmm. but will also result in a, an appropriate use of prison. Those are the kind of political right. terms right. Yeah. that you use. And in that uh, regard, Michigan is one of these states, I've, I've ran that, Community Corrections Act when I was executive director of the Office of Community Corrections that was created as a result of that law. And we uh, created voluntary boards locally with judges as the chairperson, so you've got them in a decision-making, and then they use some dollars that we put together to examine the very things that you indicated in your question. You know, uh, if we give them options and educate them about the benefits of non-prison sentences and the detriments of prison sentences, right? Then, mm -hmm. then will they change? And the answer is yes, they will. Because you can see that the recidivism rate uh, for people returning to crime or returning to prison is obviously gonna be greater for the people that spend time in prison. And right. so you've got data right off the bat, and, and then you can create uh, alternative sentencing programs and the programs behind them, you know, whether they're employment, alcohol, substance abuse, work programs, et cetera, uh, that are used to, um, to motivate the judges to use them instead. And it can be incredibly effective. We, we, we're very effective in that in Michigan. We cut prison admissions down by double digits. Okay, so so my, my intuition is correct that yeah. that's a particular point where in the pipe where you can divert a yeah. lot of, you know. I was sort of imagining like, however the pharmaceutical companies woo doctors into using their particular drug, like take all the judges out on a cruise or something and educate them in a certain way or uh, I don't know, give, there must be some 
way to I don't know get people together and tell them about the about the data, uh, like you say, and and you know you, you don't you don't tell them what to do, but you say you can draw your own conclusions, and here's the data that we have, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, and, and in spite of in spite of what you know what I said about their independence, I mean there are judicial organizations. Uh, uh, each state has judges associations, and they do have uh, court administrations, and those entities. Uh, provide education and networking capabilities and conferences right. and webinars. Okay. You get, you know, continuing credit units. And so you work with those organizations to get in front of the judges. And then you can, you know, in an educational setting, have a panel of judges that, you know, were sort of born again. Right. They, you know, they were hardcore and then they drank the Kool-Aid and this is what they've seen. And they talk about personal examples and some of them so incredibly <laughs> compelling. You know, you've got good judicial involvement in drug court programs and mental health court programs, and uh, in some states, uh, Louisiana, for example, I've done some work reentry courts that are dedicated to specific uh, types of target populations and being creative, and you can fund those. And there's ways mm -hmm. to get okay. at it, um, but it's longer term stuff too. Right. You know, and if you end up successful uh, at the entire educational development effort and start a pilot project and show that in that particular jurisdiction after two or three years that the recidivism numbers improved maybe you can expand it and then you're into a three to five year process and shall we go back to the conversation about the election right, exactly. i mean it's 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 what you have to do in a state is you have to do everything yeah everything all the time you got to do everything everything all the time you got to get at it and if you're going to do everything it's good to have a chief executive a governor who runs on, you know, who runs collaboratively and gets uh, good uh, support from these various associations and promises them some studious uh, exploration of ways to improve efficiency, which is a better way to say uh, cut costs, um, you know, and improve outcomes. But you talk about it in the in the first sense of what am I going to do to make our state safer? Right. You know, and and then you start to measure and it can look at recidivism rates, return to prison, or return to crime rates of people that are in these alternative sentencing programs compared to uh, going to prison, et cetera. And they're always better. And they're always less costly. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily what is motivating a judge. The judge is certainly interested in rehabilitation, but that may not be his primary, his or her primary goal for a particular sentencing. It may be punishment. Right. Period. And then the argument is, well, that doesn't punish him. I want him locked up. And then you get into for how long? Yeah, how yeah. long does how long does it take for you not to have freedom to be punished? It ain't ten years. Yeah, true, true. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account at seekjusticefm. See you next week.